welcome to another episode of Sounds from the 70s with Gary and Rob. Coming to you from the place where mice go to live out their final days, Winchester Building, in the downtown metropolis area. <laughs> Sorry. I like how he, you're only good for those two sentences, and then after that, you interrupt everything. Um, <laughs> this week on our show, we present part trois in our look at albums released in the month of January in the 1970s. That means two. No. Oh, it means three. Do is, is or do. dua, or whatever you say it in French. Duex. We just lost all our France people. <laughs> um, and, and today we look at the 1972 album by soul legend Aretha Franklin, Young, Gifted, and Black. Uh, also the title of Rob's second solo album. <laughs> no, that was my... <laughs> My porn movie. That's that's the album where the front. What the hell did that do? Sorry, I pressed the button here and the computer just went heat up. Uh, so I, this that that was the front cover of where he has a big afro and he's opening up a present at Neil Young's house. Get it, <laughs> Young gifted it. Uh, I knew it wasn't going to work like when I wrote it. No, yeah, I had to explain it. <laughs> okay. So, um, and it's gonna be a groovy oh, show no, because I we got those it. other things. I lost it. Rob, how was work this week? Oh, non-existent. <laughs> okay, are you uh, laid off? You know, I haven't received my official papers yet. They're just kind of uh, stringing me along for like uh, four hours this day and then three hours, uh, three days later. So I'm starving, but I can't collect the eye. Okay, so today <laughs> we have to start the show, unfortunately, with heavy hearts. As we found out the last couple weeks that, or the last two weeks, that one of our heroes passed away. Rush drummer Anil uh, Peart died on January 7th. Now, a couple of odd little tidbits to this sad story is that his family didn't release the news until January 10th, which was the fourth anniversary, already incredibly, of David Bowie's passing away. And uh, those two deaths hit me like a sledgehammer. And it was just ironic that the two big deaths in the last four years that have really just floored me, like literally floored me, were on the same day for, in the matter of, you know, four years. And uh, I remember... It comes in three, so there'll be another one in four years. Be, on, be prepared. The night before, on January 9th, I was thinking of changing our schedule of albums and themes I, I i've had literally like four months worth of themes in my head that i was going to do and then i thought well since you know for the month of february since rob was not going to be uh gainfully employed that we would try something else while we had all that time <laughs> to do and then when i when i thought that in my mind i thought you know what i really want to do this rush album we should do this Rush album in February. And I sincerely thought that like 18 hours before I heard that Neil Burt died. And, uh, and the next day, I went to do back some background information, like about 4 p.m., I guess, in the afternoon. And the first thing that popped up on Rolling Stone's website was uh, Neil Peart is dead. And I was like, it was like harsh. It was like it was like somebody had slapped me. Literally, somebody slapped me in the face. It was like, I heard it on the radio in no. the morning, and I had to keep listening so they'd say it again, and uh, just in case I didn't hear it correctly. Yeah, it it was different. It was uh, I don't know why, but I, it's just like you know, people didn't know that that he had brain cancer for the last three years, but you know that he had problems like from being a drummer with what drummers get which is bad backs and and stuff like that and, yeah. and, and kind of like uh you know i think you said that um yeah a lot like an athlete has a limited number of years to yes. be at peak performance same thing with a drummer something that physical it, it is true drummers it does really wear you, wear you down physically it really wears you down and i know i'm not even a drummer but when i drum it's 
it's a lot of work <laughs> and i can't imagine practicing every day and then playing with your band all the time and i've heard of many well phil collins is one i'm not a fan of phil collins music or his or i'm a person, genesis fan love genesis or the person <laughs> but i don't want a... anything bad to happen and i don't want him not to drum because of of any physical illnesses i wouldn't wish that on anybody and i i could name so many people uh in, in the music business that uh, who are drummers who who either have cut down dramatically on drumming or just don't do another one is uh, um, you never heard about this sort of thing in the 70s people didn't I don't know people didn't drum that hard it's different jazz drumming jazz drumming is difficult but it's not like the John Bonham type, type drumming that it's, rock and yeah, roll not started as physical there's more yes. of a swing to it uh, yeah more of a swing to it a, uh, yeah, a natural movement I just thought of John Densmore of the Doors who had to retire because of uh, of physical ailment. Um, he can't play the drum anymore. Bill Bruford, I believe, retired. No, Bill Bruford just retired. No, I I heard I'm he not, retired. Oh, he did retire. I'm, okay. But Bill Bruford retired because he just didn't. I think you know what you may be right. I just read. I was going to use this as a segment later <laughs> on, and I will. I just read this long interview by Bill Bruford. October and I was saving it and saving it and it was physical ailments but a lot of it had to do with just being tired of the business and traveling and and just being a drummer is just a pain in the ass you know yeah come to think of it I mean the vocalist comes in uh, he plugs in a microphone maybe usually the microphone's there drummer's got the whole kit to adjust and play with even if he's got techs he's still got uh, a fair bit of work uh yeah it, uh i just want to say like the uh, i read the obituary in in rolling stone that day for neil Peart, and it was very it was an amazing obituary it was very emotional and then there were and then when the when the musicians started commenting on it <laughs> that was harsh that was like when all these musicians and you realize that there's so many, many know who he is and know what he's done so like. many like he's really like i it's almost and this is how i felt like when i heard he was passing one of the many things i thought of was this is a guy that you're lucky to be living in the time that he's <laughs> because you're never going to see a drummer like that again you're never going to see no such a he kind of musician. defined a pinnacle of what uh, drummers can do uh, did, uh did, who else has come along and eclipsed him no oh i, I agree i think <laughs> that that once he started uh especially once they got popular in the late 70s like 78 79 especially with uh in 1980 with moving pictures and he really became in the spotlight um nobody came close nobody no nobody came close i mean uh bill bruford came before him uh and the only guy that i and this was this was very moving because there was this appreciation by two drummers i think the world of which was Stuart, Stuart Copeland and Neil Peart. Now, both were big fans of each other's and both were very different, but both both were very influenced by each other. And and, and Stuart Copeland wrote something really cool. He, I remember he wrote on the day Neil died that nobody has been air drummed, like <laughs> which is so true. Nobody well, has been air drummed. He plays such like interesting Neil parts. He's not a boom chicka, boom chicka drummer. I mean, I, I listened to Rush for years and thought, you know, uh, he came up with some good stuff in the studio and managed to capture it. But then uh, hearing uh, live performances compared with studio performance, you realize all those little fills and stuff, he wrote all that out. Well, yeah. That's, that blew my head right that's off. A, it's, it, it's a melodic, it's, it's, it's almost uh, a lead instrument or melodic lead instrument. Yeah. Just like you hear Paul McCartney's bass. If you hear Paul McCartney's bass, which I bring up all the time, it's almost uh, a solo song all by itself. I don't mean solo as in notes, but I mean melodic. He almost, he's almost playing a song that you could hum to just by itself with his yep. bass playing. And what Neil said about Stuart Copeland, and he, Neil was also a big fan of Stuart Copeland because they both kind of changed the, the, the way of drumming at the same time. 
and I totally agree with what Neil said. Neil was a big fan, and he said his way of drumming is not like mine, which at the time, you know, like the early 80s, but he made drums lyrical. He made drums like where you could actually sing along to the drums. And Stuart Copeland became to play a lot like Neil Peart. And Neil Peart took a lot of influences from Stuart Copeland because his playing, especially in the 80s when they turned more to synthesizers, a lot more um, lyrical, a lot more like uh, it's a lead instrument. And I don't mean a lead instrument like... Yeah, not like everyone else is kicking back. It's like Like you can remember more a Neil Peart... Um, <laughs> drum part, and it could be a little one. I, feels, I, you yeah, know I what mean, I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of that. Oh, that I, I, oh, what's the song mm-hmm. called? Where it, it it was a hit single in the late '80s, and then it went, and then so, and it goes. <laughs> I know nobody knows what I'm talking, but I can hear it in my head. But uh, it may. Oh, time stands still is another one that reminds me of like time stands still. Dum, dum. You know when he yeah. plays that, you know, and <laughs> and, the electronic and how can you not do that when you listen to the song? How can you not listen to that song and go boom, 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 boom? And uh, I don't know, and especially I know in Canada, Rush is revered like people do not believe, and it's almost a national day of mourning. They have in all the hockey arenas Come in Canada. That's why the flag was at half mast. The flag was at half mast. And during all the Canadian hockey games, uh, they played music between the play action in all the, in every single Canadian hockey arena that they played (laughs) over that weekend that he died, which was very touching. Like rush was played every single break in hockey <laughs> and i just thought that that's and 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 also in the states uh during the football games that weekend a lot of rush music was played by the tv stations as they went to commercial and that's the that's the effect wow. that's the effect that rush has had you don't know the effect because you're always and you know no, what i looked up Rob? i followed them for years and then uh they did somehow when they uh retired uh, they became more uh, more famous than they were when they were playing <laughs> yeah well their mystique has grown their mystique their mystique has always gotten bigger even when they weren't selling records yeah. then the mystique of seeing them live became big well i tell you the thing that's going to keep their music alive for a very long time and i think i've told you this before but when i was growing up i was asking other kids uh uh, if I want to be good, who who should I listen to? And everyone was saying, you got to listen to Rush, you got to listen to Zeppelin. And uh, now my nieces and nephews are learning to play, and they're asking other kids, if I want to be good, who do I listen to? And the other kids are still saying, you got to listen to Rush. Like, <laughs> oh, I know, I know. It's it's who how <laughs> it's 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 just the way it is. And you know what? Like, I'm gonna tell this story. This is this goes back a long way. But when I was looking to start a band, and this was like, uh, what, what, Rob, 84, oh, 85? Dear God, it had to be 84, 84, 85. Yeah. And I was having a lot of trouble finding a band. But there were two guys I, was, I wanted in my band as drummers. And people dragged me to, uh, which I didn't want to go to the high school uh Talent night. Uh, talent night were the, the talent night, and Rob was there playing bass with his band, and I had known of Rob because uh, I believe we did George threw a good bad to the bowl. I don't know. You oh no, we did. I don't know if you did. I don't remember that, but I just remember you guys played Rush. Everybody played Rush. Like seriously, oh, if yeah. you were serious, if you wanted it. to make an impression, like every every like kid listened to rush like and and then they played rush on a talent night so it wasn't surprising but they did it so good all the musician kids did <laughs> and all the musician kids did exactly and, some of the and jocks then, uh, there's still there's still a dispute between me and rob who i actually saw playing drums that night whether it was both became drummers in our band both became drummers in our band because they could play kind of like neil peart yeah. even though you can't play like him, but they did a pretty good job of trying to play like him. 
enough to impress me when I was sitting there. I think it was, I think, I think it was Arnold who was playing. You think it was Lou who was playing drums. Doesn't matter because they both did a, they both were very good. I was playing with Arnold and uh, Lou was playing with uh, Tom and Humbert. Oh, you know, I might've seen both that night, to be honest with you. I think I saw both that night and I said, just because they played like Neil Peart, I said, I want one of those two drummers in my band. And not only that, I got Arnold first, and then I got Lou next to play drums when Arnold quit. So I got both guys to be in our band, and I got the guy that I thought was amazing on bass, who was my friend's younger brother, which is Rob, and I said, got to get him. And you know what? It all stems from Rush. <laughs> Because that's how impressive. If you can play Rush, yeah, it's almost like okay, I want that guy in my band, <laughs> and that's really how it was. It was like, wow, they play Rush good. If they can play Rush even half as good as Rush, then they're good enough to be in a band. Like, because yeah. <laughs> even young, it shows that you know that's what they're uh, trying to uh, aspire to be. That good. exactly, and that's what I thought about too when I was watching that. So Rush uh, and Neil Peart has made. Even if I didn't do anything after that, the, that alone was a big impression on my life and changed the, that changed the way of, of, of my life went after that. Just because, just because of Rush, and Ru there are probably millions of stories like that of people lives being changed because of of that. So we're taking it hard, but you know what? Life goes on, and even though we're never going to see the likes. Of Neil Peart ever again. I, I really don't think so. I can't imagine it. I do want to mention he's one of my favorite lyricists ever. And a big part of the reason for that, uh, he's not a negative wave lyricist. Uh, you hear a lot of bands that are uh, angry and confused and don't know what's going on. You never got that from Neil Peart's lyrics. <laughs> he uh, was no, a, you never did. He was, a, I call him an observationalist. And you know what I liked? Okay. Uh, he was a, great, he was a creature because of, we were only reason. supposed to talk about this for like five minutes, and we talked about. I it get, like, I get all emotional. I, it, it is, it is a. We might even have to cut a segment because I really <laughs> want to keep on talking. But when I read the Rolling Stone a bit, there was one, and this has to do with his lyrics of what Rob mentioned, mm. was that there was one thing that always bugged me was that a lot of their their early material especially all through the 70s, relied on uh, Neil Peart's uh, love of uh, Ayn Rand. And to be honest with you, my philosophical look on life and Ayn Rand's philosophical look on life was about as different as you can be. <laughs> but I was, I when they did the obit on Neil Peart, and he said in the obit, he said, no, I, I, that he disavowed the writings of Ayn Rand. And that was, he totally disavowed it and said that uh, that was just that young was, man's thinking. That was a phase, yeah, in his it life. It was just a phase that we all go through. And he mentioned it on one album. And he mentioned it and on one album. People. <laughs> but then people clung to that. And really, his lyrics don't really evolve at all into that type of thinking. No. Uh, but people really, especially the Rush people. No, the the reason part really of it, it, yes, but uh, the rest of it, no. Yeah. Uh, and it was always a uh, it was always a point that it's like when somebody says that there are, you know, a big follower of, uh, let's say, Ronald Reagan. I would be like, oh, well, that guy's not. Loved him in the, him and that monkey. Loved yeah. Him. <laughs> if you think about the acting career, that's different. But if you go like, I really like. Ronald Reagan and his and his policies in the 80s. Well, that musician might unfortunately have a different effect on me uh, because I'm so opposed to <laughs> Reagan. But it takes a big man to say, you know what, it was just a phase, and uh, it, I I don't believe in that at all anymore. Which he did. I mean, he really disavowed it, and he really. Uh, uh, Probably got I was, that, it just made me, it just made me one, just made me again, even after he died, it was another thing that made me go, wow, what a, those three guys in general were so everyday guys. They were so Canadian. <laughs> <laughs>
and they were so you know level-headed anyways we got to move on we're going to talk about this more when we actually are going to do a rush album in a couple weeks uh in february when we start our 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 new thing uh but uh we had to say that it had to be said we don't in fact we never comment we've never commented on anybody uh passing away without reviewing their album but I had to. We had to throw this in today. We had to say something. You know, if Paul McCartney went tomorrow, uh, we'd stop the show for that. Uh, yes, exactly. <clears throat> there are some people that you just don't ignore their passing until you come across their record, and this was this was one of them. Yeah, the amount of musicians he's influenced, and they go on to create music. It's staggering. Yeah. <laughs> it really wow. is. When you think of the drummers that became drummers. And good drummers, yeah, and adopted his style. Well, it, staggering. Know, the, the one comment I heard that struck me was someone that said, uh, "You know, look at all the bands that have been influenced by Rush, and none of them sound like Rush." Yeah, <laughs> none of them sound like Rush. I tell you. We are so over time. We're going to have to all cut right. something. I think we're going to have to. Unique, yeah. well, and I got a good, I got a good thing here that I wanted. I'm going to do this anyways. I guess. <laughs> uh, we're really, we're really rambling. We got two and a half minutes. Let's ram it in there. It's going to take more than two, but I really love this segment. We're going to cut the email today. Sorry. that Even that's not going to really help with time, but we're going to cut the email <laughs> for some other time. Email's going to, not going anywhere. We're going to change the mood here. We're going to have, I have a fun little segment that I found last week online on the internet, and it's called dumb shit overheard in a seattle record store <laughs> <laughs> and i had to do this because it was it was just so funny and this is actual stuff that that has been overheard over the years in a seattle record store now while i set this up rob can you tell me about uh seattle record stores in general no but i could get back to work and what happened this week sure, can i mention happened? nothing due to the unemployment are you working or not working? I'm working, but I'm unemployed. It's a strange situation. I you're hope to not, be struck you're by not working, soon. but they call you Lloyd? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is an award-winning show. Why, that's, that's a weird thing to do. Why do they call you Lloyd? <laughs> because I worked in a record store in <laughs> Seattle. But when I worked in the record store in Seattle, I was called Murray. I so swore a lot. When you were called Murray, <laughs> that's okay, folks. Your I... pain is over. I have found it. Okay. I was about to, I was about to kick you in the, in the yard. I actually should have had this ready before the show, <laughs> but I wasn't thinking. Okay. These, these are actual things said in a record store. And believe me, they're not just said in a Seattle record store specifically this goes for probably all record stories in the last 30 or 40 years okay like uh uh <laughs> this must be common are these records from your collection <laughs> like like it's not a business like the guy just decided they, to uh, set up a record store with his own collection do they have plastic on them <laughs> they got plastic on the outside i don't got a vacuum sealer this is one of my favorites what album is this he holds up Michael Jackson's Thriller. <laughs> <laughs> the second biggest selling album of all time. And it's like, what is this album? That's Rolf <laughs> Harris. <laughs> I think he sings Timey Kangaroo <laughs> Down Mate on that one. <laughs> uh, $20 for a used record? Are you crazy? <laughs> Most used records, if they're in good quality, go for like huge amounts of money because they're so rare. And then yeah. some guy comes in and says, but I used to buy records for $6. Well, first of all, there's inflation. And second yeah. of all, they weren't rare back then. <laughs> they used to print a lot of them back then, but a bunch have been destroyed due to book burnings and such. <laughs> Did you know that they actually manufactured quite a lot back in the 70s? <laughs> oh, here's a good one. Hey, just because you got a record store, this is funny. You got a record store, right? Hey, man. Is this a weed store? <laughs> Just because you got records. Because <laughs> what goes better with a record, right? Than a weed. weed. <laughs> there were times I'd uh, smoke the weed and I'd listen to the record and I'd uh, just uh, listen to each individual part and 
Yeah, Whedon Records. I like it. Um, customer goes, you have all these old records. What do you play them with? The employee goes, well, a record An player. old record player. <laughs> and the customer goes, people still have those? Oh, well, well, of course not. But we sell the records anyway so that we, they can imagine what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> See, the real record aficionado just puts it to his ear. And he knows what songs are on. <laughs> this one Rob's going to love. Whoa, Frank Zappa. I didn't know anyone owned Frank Zappa on vinyl. <laughs> Frank Zappa is probably one of the most sought after um, artists on vinyl because his vinyl uh, differs so much from his CDs because he added a, like a lot of reverb to the CDs and the, the vinyls are just incredible sound. They were what the sound was meant to be at yes. the time. And Frank decided to fiddle. Frank loves CDs and he liked to fiddle with the sound to try and make it better. So Frank is, is just coveted for the vinyl and the guy goes in and says, Oh, I didn't know Frank Zappa had any vinyl. Um, I, I, didn't know he, I didn't know he had any CDs. <laughs> I like this. I like this. Al Green, is that a person? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, you got to respect that one a bit because they could come in the same thing and say, Pink Floyd, is that a person? That's true. That's true. Um, so it's only mostly dumb. <laughs> This one cracks me up. So what makes an album classical? <laughs> well, the composer's got to be dead for more than 120 years. And he's, the music he plays has to be classical music. <laughs> now, there's some new people doing what they call classical music. But what with their not being dead and all? It can't really be classical, can it? <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I just said I just said this a couple of minutes ago where a customer just said, geez, back when I was a kid, I never paid more than five dollars for record. I have caught myself in stupid times because I go to record stores. Not much anymore because I don't have money. And if I go to a record store, oh, the pay. impulse shopping. Yeah. The yeah. Impulse shopping. But there are some times when I get into old man mode and I go. I used to pay $6 for a record. And then I, I just like, it's a stupid thing to say. Just like <laughs> we said five minutes ago, inflation, the rarity of records and everything combined. And yet I, I'm still mad that it, I can't buy a record for six bucks. <laughs> like a new record. Um, it was the olden time black and white days. <laughs> this is funny. Whoa, man. They sell soundtracks as records. <laughs> okay, if I was an employee, I would ask that person to leave. <laughs> Not they, sir. We. We'd like you to leave the store now. And you'd have to use that voice. <laughs> use that voice. <laughs> You're not good enough to listen to that one. <laughs> uh, oh, here's a good one. Uh, are we allowed to party in here? <laughs> Just because it's a record store and there's music playing, are we allowed, allowed to like, you know, light up a big dupe and start? I don't know. Partying? Do you see any weed for sale? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, oh, when man. I get a record store, man, if I ever worked in a record store, I'd have to use that voice on people. <laughs> the condescending, uh, uh, I have to talk to you voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, here's a good one. So, so, so the hard-to-find records are all expensive? No. <laughs> That's why they're hard to find. Is <laughs> because there's not many of them. Normally, they'd be the cheapest ones because nobody <laughs> wants them because obviously they didn't make a bunch. They only made a few. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, so, you know, then I'd shift into angry voice. Things would go downhill from there. Calling the SWAT team. Ooh, SWAT team. Um, sorry. Okay, here's, here, here's one here. So the customer goes, I don't see any Jimi Hendrix. The employee says, uh, if we had that, it would be in the used rock section. Customer goes, oh, okay, thanks. Customer immediately leaves the shop. 
<laughs> does not go to used rock. Does not check for Jimi Hendrix. What is this guy thinking? He gets directions on where to find Jimi Hendrix, and then he just says, "That's such a hassle. I better just leave." <laughs> and he's down at the landscapers looking for used rocks. Is this for your yard, sir? No, it's for my record player, man. <laughs> My record player. You sure this will play? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love this one. Uh, this may be the last one here. Um, I don't know. <laughs> this is a customer. I, like it just baffles me. Okay, so the guy goes. I don't know how to look through these. Could you tell me if you have any queen? Like he doesn't know how to look through records that are alphabetized. Oh. <laughs> Maybe look under Q. I'm not sure. Um, you mock the illiterate. <laughs> That's the only explanation I can think of. How do you spell queen? I'm illiterate. Don't laugh at me. Um, okay. So those, so those I've... are just some of the things that are said in the last probably 20 or 30 years. That'd be 30 years. 30 years in, in record stores. And <laughs> I've worked, I worked at a CD shop and people were pretty good. Like people were very smart. And it wasn't records, right? Because records were, yeah, they were records were almost, records to CDs. You know, when I worked at a, in the CD record store at, for a couple of years, that records were almost not even being made. Like there was like one or two places That's that were actually right. making records. So, we got no dumb questions like about vinyl and stuff like that. And we didn't really get a lot of dumb questions. I have to admit, when I worked at a, at a CD store, we had the best customers. They were so smart. What they would do is we had, and it wasn't my idea, it was the owner's idea. We were by the university, which is a great place to have a, a CD store. We had, he had the idea of having used CDs where you would, where, where like a library, you would take them out, but you would pay like $2.50. And the record companies eventually, after about three or four years, didn't like it because they thought, and of course now it seems ridiculous because streaming is taking away all their revenue. <laughs> but <laughs> They're back going then, to take they them home and tape them. They would go home and tape them or listen to them and say, I don't like it. And That's actually it actually what was I did with so them. beneficial to record companies. Okay. And they are so business-minded and so stupid that they couldn't see it which was almost all of our customers and they were such good customers we had a lot of people coming in all the time they would like rent 10 cds at a time for like three days or two days or the over the weekend and the ones that they liked they always came back and bought them and the ones that they didn't like they wouldn't have bought in the first place I remember seeing old TV shows where they'd have, like, um, in the record stores, uh, little listening booths where you put on earphones and uh, listen to the records. Yeah, 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 back in the 60s. I don't know how long yeah. that lasted, but that was such a cool idea because you could go <laughs> into a record. When I started, that was not... I mean, that's what the CD store is, the new equivalent of that, or was. That was so cool. You, I've seen that in old movies and stuff where, uh, mm, where you go and you could actually listen to... Uh, the new single or yeah, the new record. Yeah, and then you decide and, there if you wanted to buy yeah, it or not. And, uh, that's kind of what we did, and they shut us down. They didn't shut down the store, but they shut down. Well, they kind of did because when they when we couldn't sell, when we couldn't rent the CDs anymore, it eventually, you know, doomed the store. We existed for another year or two, but it was never the same. But they couldn't understand that that's been going on for years. I mean, remember when record companies had a big uh Wiener Schnitzel, I could think of the word. A big Wiener Schnitzel. Remember when in the I, late 70s when when uh the the radio stations would play whole albums and, oh, yeah. and then people would tape the albums, but they didn't realize that they were taping these albums on on little shitty cassettes and they didn't sound good, and if they liked it, they would buy it. Yeah. They're I used to put so the cassette recorder up to the radio. And you'd always have to kind of um, uh, clip out uh, that uh, little bit of the beginning, where, or you'd get the little bit of the beginning where the DJ's talking or right at the end. And, uh... It's just not the same. <laughs> I mean, you have it to hear what the album is like, right? But you're not going to keep it and play it in your car because it just doesn't sound good enough. And it's funny that they did all of these battles for so many years, and then when the biggest threat to 
to the record industry happened, which was streaming, they almost did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And now oh. we have we have a very sick industry. But anyways, I can't remember the name of that company. Uh, Metallica was at uh, a point. Oh, uh, Napster. Napster. That, that was sense. file sharing. Yeah. yeah, that was the beginning. That was the the beginning of yeah. of streaming and and the idea of of music should be free. Yeah, you know what? Tell us musicians that music should be free <laughs> when we're trying to put food on the table. Yeah, like uh, you know, uh, composers. I realized at that point we're not going to make any money, and I wasn't uh, at that point all that big on uh, sharing too much with anything on anymore. <laughs> Like, uh, what's when you're the point? taking money out of our pockets, we're, like, we're not enthused about that. Idea. Looks like I'm just writing for myself now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just writing for the just for the art of it, which you get kind of tired after 20 years. Uh, imagine if you if you were like us and you never made any money, and unlike never. us, you did become big eventually. And you were you were at that point where you could actually sell records, but now instead of making dollars off off your CDs or records or whatever, now you're making pennies off streaming, literally pennies off streaming. Yeah. Imagine how frustrating that would be to a veteran musician who's. I mean, been at uh, it. You, you still get a bit of radio royalties, but uh, they don't amount to much. Fuck radio. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> I get that. I get that kind of anger sometimes. I remember oh. who was it? Was it CDs or tapes where um, uh, there was a proposition by the record companies to uh, take a share of uh, all tapes sold because uh, they were going to get used to record music? Oh yeah, that was the that was the that was the tapes. Yeah. yeah. There was a tape. There was a tape record company war, and all the record company wars were so stupid because actually everything that was done was to help the music be spread out, and they just couldn't see it. Except when streaming came along, <laughs> the one bad thing, the one really bad idea, <laughs> the thing that pretty companies. much almost ended them. I mean, they they just don't have the power. They did, they, you know what? They don't have the power they used to. They've they've kind of reclaimed a lot of a lot of power, but at one point it did look like there would be no record companies. <laughs> and I mean, wow. I Anyways, too, I thought they were. Finished. That's for an, that that whole topic's for another day. I really enjoyed that. I I like yeah. that 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 what the things you say at a record shop. Um, Again, we don't have much time. We kind of have to. We got about twenty minutes. We have about. We do. We have about twenty minutes and uh, twenty minutes tops. These shows are really supposed to be fifty minutes, but they almost never are fifty minutes. No, we got to go to sixty. Um, we're doing uh, an album release this week in January of nineteen seventy-two. Two. Uh, by Aretha Franklin. And this was her first album, second album? (laughs) (laughs) Called Young, Gifted, and Black. And uh, this was Aretha's 13th. 18th. 13th studio album. I read 18th on the thing. You got 13th? I I don't want to do this show anymore. (laughs) It's 18th. You're right. No, you're right. I actually, I actually didn't, couldn't read my, my, what I wrote down. And you're all right. How did you remember 18th? Uh, It blew me away. I know. I knew she'd been uh, going for a while, but at 18 albums, that's, uh, you're good at 18 albums or, or you're dead. Okay. Well, here's, here's the point. That's a good point. You just brought up 18 albums. Um, is that, you know, everybody knows about Aretha as far as singing is concerned. Not many people may know that Aretha's start was was discovered by John Hammond for Columbia Records. Remember that because we're going to bring it up next week. <laughs> the exact same <laughs> sentence that I just said will be reused next week on our show. And um, she was discovered by John Hammond. And what Columbia wanted to do in the early 60s, and she was just a young girl, like, uh, is that they wanted to uh, make her into kind of a jazz singer, kind of a singing the standards type of thing. Oh, yeah. And they tried, and they tried, and they tried from, like, 1961 until they kind of gave up and gave her to Atlanta Records and Ahmed Erdogan and, and everybody and said, you know... We don't know how. We can't do a thing with her. Exactly. That's what they said. You know what? We don't know how to market this girl. We don't know what. We know that she's an amazing singer, but we don't know what material she's supposed to sing. She don't fit in the mold. We've been hitting there and hitting there, and she don't fit. Exactly. And they they did for like six years, and that's why there's so many albums because 
like 18 because she was uh, actually yeah, by yeah. 1972 <clears throat> when this album was so she was already a recording artist for almost 12 years and uh, of course she released a lot more people released a lot more albums back then than you know you could release two three albums in a year oh yeah yeah and so but uh, but you know what Atlanta records Atlanta records Almond Erdogan, uh, Jerry Wexler, Tom Dowd, they knew exactly what to do with Aretha. And right from the very first album in 1967, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, she was huge. Huge, of course, with that song. And and then uh, uh, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman and Respect and Chain of Fools and Do I Have to Go On and On, which brings us to this album because she was in a peak from 1967 <laughs> to, to about the time disco came along uh, just album after album and she was just knocking everything out of the park she was getting the right songs now the thing about aretha is she's not just a singer <laughs> she's not just one of the greatest singers ever she I plays read, a pretty mean piano. I read she was played uh, quite a few keys on the cell. In uh, fact, she plays keys on every song but one, I think, uh, which she did for all her early albums. She always played. She plays a really mean piano. She writes her music, not all of her music. About every album has, especially in the early days, has half of her songs and half of cover songs. And it ain't filler. And no. I'll tell you that in a minute when I review the when we review the album. Aretha is like so many threats. She's not just and I'm not putting anybody down. I really not, because you know how much I love Janice Joplin and Linda Ronstadt, but they're singers, right? They are singers. Now Janice wrote a couple of songs. I'm not knocking that. She did. But they were mostly singers, and that's what that was. And they were great arrangers of songs. Like they could, they were geniuses in their own right. They knew how to but Aretha went a little bit further. She actually wrote great songs all the time, and was a great musician, and had one of the best voices ever. Oh my God! Like really, like you can't ask too much more than that. So this album, her voice is not like anyone else's. I can't think of anyone. You know. Aretha Franklin, before we get to the album here in a second, Aretha, like you said, her voice is not like any other. Aretha Franklin is both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> it's a blessing when you hear Aretha Franklin, and it's a curse because everybody from the 1980s on tries to have repeat how she sings. And I don't know how aretha knows when to sing when to emote when to bring it down yeah. she just does <laughs> but the amount of over singing or as many people have called it dylan was great dylan called it vocal gymnastics yeah <laughs> the amount of vocal gymnastics used by singers from mariah carey to or whitney houston or uh, whitney a lot houston. of people tried to sound like her in finishing the note of a exactly uh, the last word of a sentence by uh, you going all over the place and just going all over the place and do you hear aretha go all over the place she doesn't actually no she just picks her she spots picks when her to her emotes and when to lay back and if you studied it you people would understand or at least yeah. the singers would understand people think that they have to hold a note for two minutes and and then waver it and all of a sudden they're like aretha or that's not that's showing off that's not releasing your soul into the music that's just plain showing off that's filling it up with uh, filler it's See, I filling made it the up note with here. filler it is i even made a note here uh, the, the one thing that struck me about her voice was the power of her vocals and uh, the crescendos uh, the way she'd uh, go up and out the dynamics like it, it was powerful powerful stuff and it, i guess the one mistake i made <clears throat> in picking this album and i <clears throat> It only happens really when you pick an album is that this was the album we picked after Janis Joplin. And I had a lot of Janis in my blood oh, well, when uh, I picked this album. And, and they're really two different types of singers. There's yeah. so many different types of singers. Like there really is. There's there's the great singers, purely a great singer. And there's the singers who emote. And, and there's so many different types of singers. And and I I, I just had a lot of for the first couple of listens 
had a lot of still a lot of Janice in me because <laughs> I was so so I don't know I was got so into to Pearl when when yeah. we did that album I got just got so into nice it nice listen after and all it these was years. yes <laughs> and it was just such a, a great week of listening it really was and this is not like Janice it's just different that's all and it it threw me for the first couple of listens and then when you get into the Aretha mode which is totally different. Everybody's got their own mode, some of it good, some of it bad. Uh, you just go, man, I I just want to say about, about the album, I mean, like I said, this is Aretha, like everybody agrees, at the top of her game, right in the middle of her prime, before disco came along and kind of, you know, unfortunately for everybody sidelined everything it eclipsed everything it eclipsed yeah. everything yeah everybody was more concerned and with people with making travel through time and we're doing music they're like well should we uh try and do what's hip or do what we enjoy and almost nobody escaped almost every r&b and soul artist tried to be hip and followed because disco if you weren't there it was huge <laughs> yeah, you could be led to, to believe that that's where music was going like you even had rock stars like rod stewart and the, the stones of all people being influenced to do to do disco so i i probably would have done disco <laughs> at that time too if i was a recording artist no um, we were just musicians and yeah. it never crossed our minds <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um with this album uh I'm just going to go through, like, the things that really amazed me about this album is, first of all, my feeling, my my favorite songs are actually Aretha's. Yeah. I loved Aretha's songs. I think that she just knew how to sing them. She knew how to arrange them because they were her songs. I really love Daydreaming. Just a fantastic, almost psychedelic, weird song, but also very touching. Then it kind of grooves a little bit with rock steady i mean it has a little bit of a rock groove and yet it has like it just it's just so cool and then i also thought all the king's horses was so cool yeah and really well we're not even too. halfway through the album and she's hitting <laughs> it out of the park with her own songs as far as i'm concerned i love her version of young gifted and black which is a nina simone song by the way and she made it into a spiritual which i thought was not only was it convincing because it was more of um what do you call it it was more of a protest song young gifted and black and she turned it around into this spiritual song about you should be thankful to be young gifted and black it's given to you by god and it was so smart so smart um i'm not saying Oh, I'll just comment. I just take, want to yeah. comment on the one other song on side two, uh, First Snow and Kokomo, which I also thought was an amazing song. Uh, and she kind of took the riff from Dave Brubeck's uh, Kathy's Waltz from the Time Out album. Some people may know what I'm talking about. Uh, one of my favorite albums is the Dave Brubeck Time Out album, which is, I think, is like the second or third biggest selling jazz album of all time behind uh, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Everybody knows Take Five, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one's on my, uh, my computer. But there's a, there's a great song on it called Kathy's Waltz, uh, written for his daughter, and it sounds amazingly like musically on the piano like Aretha's version, but then Aretha starts singing and then the music starts to go and then it's like, ooh, okay, wow. Um, and then I'll, I, the other thing that that really blew me away was right at the end of the album, when you're kind of exhausted, comes, I think, the best song Her on the version. album. Her version of Elton John's Border, Border song. song, which is that just... That grabbed me. Holy smokes, did it grab me. <laughs> holy smokes, is that... I I swear I I wanted to play that song immediately after it was done. The covers took me a few listens to recognize them and uh, realize, wait a second, I I've heard that before. <laughs> and this one, yeah, it caught me a bit. For the first little while, I was thinking, did she write this? But then I knew uh, you, I had to look it up. Border <laughs> song sounds like a song she wrote. It Border does. song. That if you did, if I like had never song. heard the Elton John song, I would say, man, that's a, that's a great Aretha Franklin song. <laughs> and it's just so perfectly arranged 
for Aretha's voice yeah. and for her church background. And it's it's the best song on the album by far on on an album that has so many great songs. I'm not saying though that everything was copacetic with me on this album. And just what Rob said about the cover songs, especially on side two, actually, I think only on side two, April Fools really sounds to me, I kind of liked it better at the end when I listened to it like the fourth or fifth time. But the first, it kind of sounded like one of those cruise ship songs, you know, like Love Boat, you know, I, I really... <laughs> It really rubbed me the wrong way. A little way. too A.M.E., a little too stringy. Yes, yeah. yes, a little too M.O.R. Too heavy on the strings. Yeah, uh, I didn't, I, I wasn't thrilled about, even about I'm, I've Been Loving You Too Long. I think I'm too used to the Otis Redding version and what he did with it. And I thought her version, even though good, was was just kind of left me like, oh, that's okay. And didn't, also, didn't grab you. also mm. The Long and Winding Road, I, I just didn't. I thought it was a very imaginative arrangement of it, but again, it didn't it, move you like the Beatles version did. Didn't. That's exactly. That's yeah. exactly. It just didn't move me like the Beatles version, and I thought that that was the best song to knock out of the park. And I said, "What a wasted opportunity! A smart arrangement, but maybe overthinking it a little bit too much." And that's my take on it. Uh, I overall, I just think. Uh, unbelievably strong album with a couple of weaknesses when i first listened to it uh it, it wasn't one that i was uh wanted to listen to the next day it wasn't one that i didn't want to listen to the next day it was just kind of it it didn't didn't grab me didn't strike me but but the, but the fourth or fifth listen that's when i really started to uh enjoy it it's one that it grew on me musically love the band fantastic really good playing not the band but the no band the band <laughs> she's playing with the musicians we do that all the time sorry. and there's a bunch of different guys on this uh, uh dr john came in and played uh, percussion i think on the third song uh, yeah you're right yeah rock steady uh, billy preston well, there's a couple of names that billy I preston played on rock steady too great song yeah but uh, her vocals really grabbed me like I say, the way she um uh, she'll be singing, and then uh, when it gets to a passionate part of the song, that crescendo, not that crescendo, the, the way she crescendos, the way she brings it up, and uh, has such a powerful voice. It's almost indescribable. It, you can't when you say something like her voice crescendos. It's such a simplistic yes. term, but there is not. <laughs> you have to put it into listen words, to it. But to... She, yeah, you have to listen to it to really well, understand what it is. She starts uh, singing a bit uh, louder and a bit higher and a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, words words can't really describe the art of how she sings. No, but we that's what we're here to do. Anyways. You have to hear Aretha to know what Aretha yeah. sounds like. It's uh, putting everything exactly in the right spots. And almost all the time with emotion uh, and intuition, which I don't know how she does it. And the one thing I definitely have to mention, probably the best backup vocals I've ever heard. Got to agree. Both in delivery and in writing complexity. They are not boring backup vocals. Especially uh, Daydreaming. Daydreaming yeah. was just almost, almost overtook... <laughs> Uh, Aretha's vocals. They were so inventive for background vocals that it almost became the song. Like you really have to learn this. You, you think of a song nowadays where you know uh, they, they, they're going to play the verse that'll go like through 16 bars and you sing an ooh over this and you change the ooh to this note over that two bars and you have to hear it. It's uh, yeah, incredibly complex. It is. There is even that. There's one part in the song I've been uh, loving you too long. I think they even swear. <laughs> <laughs> All I don't it, know about that. You can that. play on AM, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> in the backups. <laughs> That's the sort of thing I'd expect. I think, Frank you, Zappa. I think you're planting a little <laughs> bit of something just just to rile the audience up. But uh, have a listen to it. I've been loving you too long. Tell me if they don't say. So fuck it now. <laughs> now you got me interested. <laughs> I'll listen to that one song. I'm going to listen to it tonight when I get home from the mighty Winchester building. Um, but just incredible backups. 
I agree. Lang I, was really I, I good. feel almost bad not even mentioning it because they are some of the best backups I've ever heard on an album. I'm I'm I've heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of albums. And for me to say of an album I just heard, oh my by the way, it yeah. has some of the best backgrounds I've These ever heard. Background <laughs> vocals were not an afterthought. They were they are part of they are part, part of, what of the makes writing the arrangement yes. the way it is. They were uh, I think actually part of the writing. But just um, incredible. Band was incredible. Did, did, did you have any opinion about like because I had trouble with side two, I'm sorry. It, but did you have any trouble with, with the cover songs on side two? The long and winding road, uh yeah. It didn't uh, grab me the way uh the other ones did. The other ones I didn't know were covers except for Border Song, which it took me a few. But uh God, I want to hear that song right now. <laughs> <laughs> that song I could hear Every week for the rest of my life, Aretha's version. I mean, Elton's is amazing too, but Aretha just hits it out of the park. But definitely, Rock Steady was one that I really loved. April Fool. That's. Uh, I liked it when they got in the middle and started grooving. That's the Actually, it did. It did sound better by the time of Once the middle the band of the song. Yes. Cooking and, uh, yeah, yeah. and that that kind of at the beginning was just totally yeah. cruise ship version. It's like something like uh, I wouldn't voluntarily listen to this. <laughs> is this Aretha? This, this is not Aretha. But uh, it did turn around. Uh, it still didn't, you know, make it a good song as far as as it sounded like filler to me. But it it did stop it from being a bad song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So I, this is tough because th there are so many strengths on this album. Yeah. But there are weaknesses which I can't ignore, and I've really been going over this. There is. I I don't know. I could give it four. I could give it four and a half. I wouldn't feel bad about giving it either one, but I think. I'm gonna make I my know. I'm gonna interrupt you right now and make my comment here. I, I I found it was a bit for me, like Richie Havens, where you absolutely love the singer, but the album as much it was really good. It, uh, it didn't grab me as much as uh, as I thought it could have. You know that's funny. That <laughs> is that is. So I know that we always but, say this. Like but once every again, three, the more I listen to it, the episodes, more it grew on me. So I, it's hard to judge. Maybe I need another five or six listens. Every three episodes, <laughs> he, we end up saying almost exactly the same thing. But one of us says it first. This album didn't, I expected from what I had read about it and what I had heard uh, from critics and just the public in general, it, it, almost lived up to its uh potential but i expected it to be better to be honest with you and that's not mean it's not excellent it's an excellent but i expect it to be the five four and a half to five albums that so many critics were giving it and i just thought no there's too many there's too many things in here that i find wrong that prevents it i give it four and i, I have decided now has, that i give it four out of five a yeah. strong four out of five but I don't know why more people don't pick up. Maybe they don't. Maybe they like these songs that I don't. You know, why should I say that? Yeah, I did wonder a bit. Uh, but I can't. Some of the musical directions. I, but... Yeah, I, I can't imagine anybody listening to "I've Been Loving Her Too Long," which is nice, but saying like, "Wow, that's fantastic. That's like Otis Redding doing yeah. it." I can't see anybody, or I can't imagine nope. anybody listening to "The Long and Winding Road" and saying that's just as good as the Beatles version. I could hear them say that's I don't that's a really imaginative version of that song, but I can't imagine many people, and that's I could be wrong, but I can't imagine many people saying, "Wow, that's a better version than the Beatles." And if you got Aretha Franklin singing a song like "The Long and Winding Road" and she doesn't top the Beatles, then you get four stars, young. That's what I was. I was four stars. What I meant by is that a song that's almost written for her to sing, like The Long and Winding Road. Like that song is just, when you hear that, oh, she's going to do The Long and Winding Road, you think, yeah. my God, she's going to hit this out of the park so If easy. I heard she was going to do Border Song, I'd be like, eh, you know, maybe that's not for her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
exactly and uh, that's why that's why maybe i'm being uh a little bit too harsh but every time i listened to it i came i came to the conclusion that it was it didn't live up to my expectations however excellent an album it was it didn't live up to the high expectations i had for it. that's me that has nothing to do with anybody else that's just i had huge expectations for this album being that aretha was on top of her game and i expected a four and a half even a five-star record before i'd even heard it and that's my fault if you know people want to criticize that that's fine but that's what I was expecting. Like I said, my first uh, opinion of it, uh, it didn't grab me. After about four or five listens, parts of it grabbed me. <laughs> I still love the album. I still really love the album. But it just like the Richie Havens album, it's not an album that I would play all the time. You know yeah. what I mean? Or, yeah. you know, if somebody reminded me of it, I'd go, oh, okay, I like that album. I'll, I'll put it on. But it's not like... An album that blew me away, like Curtis Mayfield's Superfly, which yeah. just which just blew me out of the water. And I, if somebody somebody would not have to nudge me to play that album again, <laughs> <laughs> that one grabbed me. That one that one was was a beautiful album that even exceeded the high expectations I had for it. This had high expectations; it did not exceed them. But I still say to everybody listening out there. Please, if you're into soul music and you're into Aretha, yeah. this is an excellent album. This is really good. We're out of time. <laughs> We're so out of time. It's not even funny. And uh, But we will be back next week with the last of our series and of, of albums released in January 1970s. And next week, which is going to seem a lot like tomorrow, is going to be... <laughs> More so to some of us, though. <laughs> is going to be our first anniversary show and our 50th show, all rolled in yeah. one. It's going to be a big party. We're this going to is have incredible. Ah. If we were starting, you would have said to me, hey, uh, you're going to do 50 shows. I would have said, nah, we'll be dead before then. No, I'd kill him before that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tune in the next week for that. Uh, we had fun today, like we always do. And see you next week. Rock on.